0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska, that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Let me pray for our study. Father, Father, we just thank you. We bless you. Um, uh, God, God, uh, this is such a privilege to stand uh, in this pulpit tonight in front of these folks and to preach your word and so God I pray that you would um, take the words of my mouth the meditations of my heart that you would cause them to be acceptable in your sight God you are our rock and our redeemer I pray that you would help us to catch a bigger picture of you as our rock and our redeemer our rock the place that we can stand the rock uh, the place of our refuge Uh, the rock uh, the place of our firm foundation when everything around us seems to be Um, kind of shifting um, a rock in our redeemer the one who has paid the price help us to remember that our redemption was made possible by the cross of christ and the redemption has a name and that name is jesus help us to see you more clearly tonight as our redeemer in jesus name everybody said amen amen Luke chapter 21, verses 20 to 28. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And I have nearly a million pictures on my phone. My kids think it's fun to steal my phone and take selfies. <laughs> And sometimes it's a little bit frustrating, right? Because there's a million pictures on my phone taking up space. And I oftentimes will find myself um, deleting tons of them because it feels like it's the same picture over and over again. There's some sort of like a a shutter um, setting, I think it might be called, where like it literally can take a gazillion pictures after you press the button once and you can hear the phone. Sounds like a machine gun taking pictures. Okay, So so then what happens in my phone is my phone gets blown up with all of these selfies that look exactly the same and there's really no change in them. So sometimes it can be a little bit frustrating. Um, But one of the things that I really love about going through those pictures um, is just the fact that it reminds me of how much my kids and I love each other. And that's really what's taking place in this passage. What Jesus is doing is he's taking a picture on the one hand of the horrific destruction of Jerusalem. And then he basically takes a selfie shot and holds it up for all of us to be reminded of his great love for us. So if you can get that picture kind of in your head of this dual picture that Jesus is taking, it makes it a bit easier to understand all of the imagery in this text. I think I said last week that um, uh, last week, this week, and next week will will be weeks where we will focus on a big word called eschatology, uh, which simply means um, the study of the end, the study of the end things, the study of Christ's return. And, uh, and in the midst of studying through those things, it can be really easy to kind of dive into newspaper theology where you pull out the newspaper, you think of your news feeds, or you think of Fox News or CNN or any of those, and, and you, maybe you see right now that there's tons of people protesting our soon-to-be president, right? Um, and, and so you might see those things and then easily begin to think, oh, oh, no, it's the end of the world, right? The the end of the world is near. The end of the world is here. And it's easy to begin thinking those things Uh in a newspaper theology mentality. Um, But the reality is, hey, the Bible wasn't written in America, number one. Number two, it wasn't written to Americans. um, and, and, And it definitely wasn't written about Trump. So I'm just going to get that out there. And just let you all just like breathe a sigh of relief, right? Okay. Okay. Neither Obama nor Clinton nor Trump are the antichrist. Um, this is, this is not that, no, we're just, we're not going to get, the Bible doesn't talk about them. Okay. Um, I know we can have some fun kind of like, you know, backyard conversations about some of this stuff and kind of have a riot with, but when we come to the scriptures, we come to this passage, um, there is a context There is a group of people that are hearing what Jesus is saying. He's speaking to a specific group of people and it has specific meaning for them at that place, at that time in history. And then now, later for us today, it has some implications and some application for our lives. And so we need to do really good at just kind of understanding what's really taking place in this passage. Who's he talking to? What's What's he talking about? And what does this really mean for us today in 2016? And so as we think about that big panoramic view that I just kind of laid out, what I want you to remember is this. Jesus is basically laying out a dual picture. One is of the destruction of Jerusalem that is imminent and coming soon. And then the other is a selfie of himself. And what he's doing in the midst of doing that is he's reminding us of his great love for us. And really the big overarching point of this whole passage is for us... To, to either A, come to know or come to terms with the fact, or to be reminded that our redemption is near. Your redemption is near. Near. It's, it's more than a possibility. It's not just a kind of a cool opinion. It's near. And redemption is, is the truth that, that we all need Christ. It's not some faraway thing to be grasped is something that is very near to us. So as we break down the text, one of the first things that, that I see, as I have said a minute ago, is that Jesus describes the destruction of Jerusalem. Specifically, he really hones in on this in verses 20 through 24. And what he does here is he paints this picture of of epic destruction on like, like just mass proportion, right? And the picture that he paints is overflowing with imminent danger, terrifying fear, abuse, death, decay, fear, wrath, oppression, this is the picture that Jesus is painting, and we need to see that picture clearly. It's a picture of mass devastation and epic destruction. You can write that down because you probably hear me say it over and over and over again. This first picture that Jesus paints is a picture of mass devastation and epic destruction. Jesus says that the city of Jerusalem will be surrounded and destroyed, right? And what he's doing is he's literally prophesying about something that's going to happen within the next 40 years. So you put yourself in the original audience that Jesus is talking to, Jesus is prophesying about something that will happen in the next 40 years for them. History actually records the events of that day when Jerusalem was completely destroyed records when the Roman Empire surrounded the city of Jerusalem and crushed it just like Jesus said would happen. Most scholars uh, agree that nearly a million Jews were brutally murdered. Think of a million people in a city. Nearly a million Jews were crushed and destroyed when Jerusalem was Almost 100,000 Jews were taken captive when this happened. Can you imagine? Imagine what it must have been like to be the disciples. Hearing this for the first time before it happened. Imagine being the disciples. Standing there with Jesus. You've just come out of the great and beautiful temple that we preached about last week. You just come out of this beautiful place that you cherish. And now Jesus is laying it on even heavier. And he's saying, hey, it's not just the temple that's going to get destroyed. The entire city of Jerusalem will be destroyed. What would it have been like? To have been walking with Jesus in the flesh. Thinking. Thinking that he's here to take the throne. And destroy oppression once and for all. That's what you're thinking about Jesus. Only to have him tell you that he's actually going to die. And that the city along with the temple that you cherish and hold dear to you is going to get epically destroyed. It's a picture of, of, of massive devastation. Right, Massive devastation and epic destruction. That's what's taking place here. Jesus goes on to say that that people will need to flee the city and stay away from the city. He says people that are in the city when this happens are going to need to leave. And those who are outside the city should not come to the city. Cities are often viewed as places of safety and refuge. Think of your safe place. Think of your safe place that you go to. For, for some of you, I, I, I don't know, but for me, for me, my, my safe place is, is back next to my garage, yeah. right? Where my fire pit is, and, and I, I spend my life serving people, right, and so my place of safety where I try to get away, unless, unless I've invited somebody to be there, that's, it's my patio um, with my cigar and my fireplace and my cold drink, right? That's, that's kind of my place of safety and refuge. And you know, when, when someone kind of comes and invades that, and I have my, my hairs go up on the back of my head, and it's ridiculous. Like, I'm just, it's, it's ridiculous. This is their place of safety and refuge. And what Jesus is saying is, it's going to get destroyed. Most people would rather be in a city where resources are readily available. During uh, like cataclysmic events, massive storms, most people will head for the city. You always hear that term, head for the hills. Most people actually want to head to the city because there's more people and more resources there. It feels safer. It feels like a place that you can hide out. you imagine what it must have been like for the disciples? Put yourself in their place again. I'm going to constantly try to take you back and place you in the seat of his disciples, so that you can wrestle with what it would be like to be them so that we can then make application to this later. What would it have been like to have been the disciples and to have Jesus basically creating this category in your mind? It's a, it's a new category. The category you've always thought in, the box you've always thought in is Jerusalem and the temple is a place of safety and refuge. It's a place that I cherish. And Jesus comes in and creates this new category. The place that you once thought was safe is no longer safe. He creates this new category. The place that you once took refuge in is no longer going to be a place of refuge. He's painting a picture for us of mass devastation and epic destruction, right? Right? He's basically destroying everything that the disciples thought was going to be good and true. Jesus follows that up by saying that the destruction of Jerusalem is basically going to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Think of the Old Testament if you're familiar with that much. And if you're not familiar with it a whole bunch, just... Just, just think about your familiarity with, with the concepts of like judgment in Old Testament proportions, right? Maybe you heard phrases like that. And the Old Testament prophets, when they wrote, and they always warned God's people of the price that they would pay for their unfaithfulness. And what Jesus is doing is he's drawing his disciples' attention to Old Testament prophecy. He says this in verse 22 when he says, These are the days of vengeance. He's talking about his father. He's talking about wrath. He's talking about that side of God that makes us sometimes the most uncomfortable. These are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Meaning, these things have been written about. They've been prophesied previously. Moses, Jeremiah, Micah, Zephaniah. And those are just some of the Old Testament prophets that spoke of these things. Daniel. These are just a few of the Old Testament prophets that pointed forward to this kind of of judgment they warned Israel of the coming destruction of Jerusalem they warned Israel this would be a consequence for their sin they warned Israel in regards to their disobedience and their continued rejection their continued stiff arming their continued plugging of their ears their continued covering of their eyes the prophets wrote and warned Israel of these things This wasn't the first time that God had withdrew His hand of protection on one side and then extended His hand of discipline and correction and wrath on the other. Anger. This wasn't the first time. And and I think for the disciples to to hear that this was going to happen again would bring up Big pictures of fear in their minds. Imagine. Imagine what it would be like to be the disciples in these moments. To hear that judgment and discipline was coming soon, just as it had come in the Old Testament. Like I, again, I think it would have been a frightening realization. <coughs> ever watch? Ever, ever been sitting there watching TV and you see a commercial of a horror movie that's coming out soon? And at first, you're kind of like, eh, yeah, it doesn't look that scary. And, and the great thing they always do with those horror movie um, um, commercials, I think, is they always, they always kind of like toss one thing in the there that just freaks the crap out of you. Like, like, just bam, like that, right? You don't see it coming. And imagine that terrifying feeling. Just imagine it just continuing, though, and not dissipating after the commercial goes away. I think this would have been a frightening realization for them. Can you see that Jesus, like when he prophesied these things, he did it because he knew that many people within Israel were going to reject him in a few days. Like he knew that. He knew that they were going to reject Him and murder Him on a horrible cross of execution in just a few days. Can you feel what that reality uh, must have felt like for Jesus' disciples? He's painting this picture of, of mass devastation and epic destruction based upon their unfaithfulness and their sinfulness. Jesus also says that the destruction of Jerusalem will be dreadful for the most vulnerable of people. In verse 23, he he, he tells us that women who are pregnant or or nursing certainly would not be able to escape the devastation that was coming down the pike. And if they didn't get out of town early, this was going to be most difficult for them. Historians say this, to put us back in the historical context again. Historians say that the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem for so long before they actually destroyed the city that nobody could get out of the city to get resources. They ran out of resources. Imagine yourself locked in your home, surrounded by an enemy that you cannot defeat Imagine that. you can't get out of your home. They turn off your water. They turn off your lights. You're out of food. What happens? And the historians and scholars say um, that what set into the city of Jerusalem was starvation of epic proportion. Cannibalism. Human sacrifice. This is what took place as Jerusalem was being destroyed. Cannibalism, human sacrifice, and infighting within the city's occupants. They basically turned inward because of the enemy that had the, the city surrounded. They say that this, um, this destruction of the city took more lives in, 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 than, than could nearly be counted. Some say it was about a million while 100,000 were, were, were taken captive. But for the most vulnerable of people, this coming destruction of Jerusalem was going to be worse. Absolutely terrifying for them. Can you imagine children just walking down the street? Your own children. Starving. and You can't do anything for them. Dropping dead. I think for us in America, I think it's hard for us to comprehend this. And I think it's important for us to have these categories created in our minds. Young children just dropping dead in the streets from starvation. Husband eating his wife. That's horrifying, right? Piles of dead babies in the street. There's one historian that said this. He said that, that some of the horrors of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem were far too graphic to even be recorded. That's how bad it was. This is a picture of mass devastation and epic destruction. Jesus says that the destruction of Jerusalem will only be a continuation of the trampling of the Jews. He prophesies that this trampling of the Jews will continue until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Without spending a ton of time there, what I think Jesus is saying here is that Israel will be trampled on, oppressed, abused, and slaughtered until the time of the Gentiles are over. And I think that the time of the Gentiles is over when Jesus returns. I think it will continue until then. My understanding of the study of, of what Jesus is saying here is the time of the Gentiles began sometime before this, and it will continue until Jesus returns. Can you imagine hearing that? You imagine hearing that the devastation that you are facing will not end until Jesus comes back again. He's standing there with you. You thought that when you saw him, that as the Messiah and Savior, he was coming to save you from this living hell that you are in. And he's saying, No. This is what you have to look forward to. This is Jesus, right? Blue-eyed, blonde-haired, loves to hold babies on his lap, only says kind things, never says a harsh word. The Americanized version of Jesus. You can drop kick that out the door, right? He has just described the the destruction of Jerusalem in, in some very graphic ways. He's told his disciples that the things that they cherish and love are going to be destroyed. He's telling them that their place of safety and refuge will become a place of destruction and death. He's telling them that horrifying wrath and anger is coming on account of mankind's disobedience, rejection, and unfaithfulness. He's telling them that destruction is coming and it's too horrifying to describe every single detail. It's almost, it's almost like this is the beginning of the end rather than the end itself. How devastating would that be to hear? How hopeless would you feel? How fearful would you be? Maybe. Maybe that's right where Jesus wanted those who were hearing him. Maybe he's got them right where he wants them. Maybe that's right where he wants you and I to be this evening as we hear this passage. Because after painting this picture of mass destruction and the hopelessness of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus then holds up that massive selfie of himself and he paints a picture of the object of our hope. The second thing that Jesus describes is his second coming. Verses 25-27. to Think about it. What will it be like to be alive on earth during the time of Christ's return? What will be happening in the world when Christ returns? What will it be like these are some of the questions I think Jesus kind of answers as he works through this description of his return and as he paints the picture of our hope, as he takes that massive selfie. Jesus says that there will be signs of his second coming everywhere. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars all over the earth as nations wage war with one another. All across the oceans and the seas as natural disasters erupt everywhere. This is a picture of total pandemonium, right? Across the earth. And as the cosmos and all throughout all of God's creation, everything comes unhinged, so to speak. Can you imagine what that will be like to experience that? That's what will be happening when Jesus returns on this cloud in power and glory. What do you think you would feel like to witness worldwide tidal wave of devastation and destruction? What do you think it would feel like to stand on your front porch in front of a massive tidal wave bearing down on your home and you are completely and absolutely powerless to stop it? Or maybe watch as countless tornadoes spin recklessly around the world. Not, not just down Tornado Alley, but around the world. What if as you're watching all that happen, as you're watching all that happen, you also see stars falling from heaven, right? The, the moon changing colors, not just like the blood moons that everybody went so crazy about a while back. Oh, it's a prophecy. Jesus is coming back. Yeah, guess what? He didn't. Hmm. <laughs> Newspaper theology, right? The picture that Jesus paints here is not like an ongoing Um, timeline with all these different things going to happen at certain points. It's all happening at once. Everything is coming unhinged. Maybe as you're experiencing that, maybe look at the sun. Like The sun is just shaking uncontrollably. Foreign nations are dropping bombs in every community across the world. What would you feel like if this were happening all at once? What would you feel like Jesus says it this way. He says that people will be afraid because of the chaos in the world. The picture Jesus uses here is of people actually fainting from their fear and their anxiety because of what's happening across the world. It will be as though the very foundations of heaven itself are getting rocked beyond control. It's as though the sinful spin of our world towards widespread pandemonium and destruction will be unstoppable and uncontrollable. Can you imagine what that sense of an absolute lack of control feels like? A sense that you can do nothing to change where things are headed. Can you imagine a total sense of helplessness deep within your heart as you stand on your porch as you see those things happening. One scholar says this. He says, The unbeliever stands on his porch in fear because this is the end that he or she has hoped for. This is the end of all that he or she has hoped for. But the believer in these moments stands in confidence with his or her eyes turned towards heaven awaiting the return of Christ. Which side of the coin are you on tonight? If you're here and you don't believe in Christ, then you stand on one side, hopeless and helpless, to change the coming destruction or to save yourself from it, Right? But if you're here and you're a believer, you don't have to walk in fear. You walk with your eyes locked on Christ because your redemption is near. Right? Jesus says that people will see him coming in the heavens. He specifically says this. He says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This is a picture of our conquering king who is returning to set everything right in the face of total destruction, mass pandemonium, the loss of hope. Christ is the picture of our hope. It is Christ that we sing to when we sing worship together. He is the audience of one that every one of us lives for. Why? Because He is our hope. The Apostle John described the same thing this way. Some of you might remember the Apostle John as being the one whom Jesus loved meaning that Jesus didn't love anybody else. But Jesus had deep affection for the Apostle John. John was part of Jesus' inner three that he spent most of his time with. John was the one that he spent most of his time with. At the end of his life, before dying at the cross, Jesus looked at John, and he said, Take care of my mom. Such a human side of Jesus at the cross to be worried about his mom. Right? John writes this in the book of Revelation, Revelation 19:11 through 16. You guys hear me reference this a lot because it's one of my favorite passages of all time. Why? Because this is where our hope lies. Listen. Revelation 19:11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open. white and pure. We're following Him on white horses. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is our returning Savior. This is our soon-to-return King. This is the one that if you're here and you've trusted in Christ and His work at the cross, then you have hope because He's returning for you. He's got your picture in his pocket. He left you with two pictures. One of the coming destruction and the other was a selfie of himself. And then he's got your picture in his pocket and he's coming back for you. That's the hope that you and I have. Doesn't that make you want to walk differently? Doesn't that make you want to stand differently? Doesn't that make you want to live differently? Differently, And if you're here and your motivation to live differently is anything other than that picture of Jesus at the cross and soon to return to get you. And your picture is skewed. And my hope is that God would challenge you this evening. And the picture that we get from this is that if you oppose God, if you rejected Him, then you have no hope. You have nothing good to look forward to Because the truth is that what you have to look forward to is death, decay. You have no purpose for living. You're a mistake. You don't know where you're headed. But if you're here and you've trusted in Christ, you have so much to look forward to. Christ is the epitome of our hope. It's the thread of our faith. This is a picture of Christ's return. What a fantastic picture it is that he gives us. It's the hope that we have. Christ himself is the picture of our hope. What Jesus does, he's just described his second coming so that we can see the picture of him as the object of our hope, right? We can look at these dual pictures that Jesus painted for us. We can look at the first picture of the destruction of Jerusalem and that selfie of the return of Christ. And we can admire them as really awesome paintings. We can even just kind of get to know them in all of their Detail. We can attempt to gain more knowledge about them. We can hang them up so that people can observe them. But the reality is that when Jesus described this dual picture of destruction on one hand and hope on the other, he described it so that his disciples could respond. It wasn't just telling mere fairy tales so that they could be oohed and awed. He was telling them stories so that they could respond. How should they respond to this is the question. It's a hermeneutical question. It's a question of interpretation, in other words. As you interpret the scripture, how should they have responded? And then oftentimes, you should be able to make that application to yourself. There are some scholars that don't think that this section of Scripture has any application or bearing on a person's life. I think they should have their certificates taken away. How should their hearts be provoked in these moments? How should the disciples... Feel deep inside when hearing these things? How should they think about these things? How do you think Jesus wanted them to respond to these stories? Here's what I think. Uh, I think that if he was getting ready to go to the cross and die for their sins and, and, and the sins of the world, so that those who trust in him could be saved and changed and made part of the family of God rather than living as enemies of God, then I think this business of what of Jesus at the cross is pretty serious since it costed him his life, which then means that the stories that he tells here are serious, eternally serious for you and for me and for his original listeners. So what Jesus does in kind of the third stanza of this passage is he describes how and why. He describes how. How, on one hand, how do you respond, and why should you respond that way? I want you to think about the word response for a minute before we head there. Think about the word response. The message of the gospel elicits a response. The message of the gospel elicits a response. The bad news of the gospel, which really is the depth of our consequences. Of our sin that part of the message of the gospel elicits a response and there's two sides of the response that we either make when we hear the bad news of the gospel we either hide cover and run on one side or we acknowledge confess and surrender when we hear the bad news of the gospel that's just one part of the gospel message most of you, some of you, may, may rightfully be sitting in your seats saying, well, the, the gospel means good news. Does. does. In the gospel, there is both bad news and good news. The bad news of our sin and the consequences we will pay for it. And the good news of what Christ has done to overcome it. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is the hope of Christ, that we have in Christ and His work at the cross on our behalf. That part of the message of the gospel elicits a response as well. We either, on one hand, resist, reject, and rebel against the good news of the gospel, or we submit, receive, and run to Christ as a response to the message of the gospel. So in light of this whole concept of of the gospel that elicits a response, the question for us is, how do we respond? How does Jesus ask his disciples to respond in this passage? Why should they respond in the way that he asked them to respond? And then how does that apply to us? Jesus says this, verse 28, that in light of the coming destruction and his return... We should straighten up and lift our heads. Whatever does that mean? Straighten up and lift your heads, right? He actually says it this way, verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. One scholar says that as the world shrinks back in fear, the saints will look up in expectation. As the world shrinks back in fear, the saints will look up in expectation. This is the response of the believer. We do not hunch over in despair or disappointment. We instead straighten up with our chins up, with our heads up like sons and daughters of the king of kings that we truly are. We don't walk around beaten down and depressed, right? We walk around in humble dependence and joy in our King, in our Savior. We don't hide out in the basin while the world goes to hell in a handbasket around us. And we get out in our communities and we share the hope of Christ. We don't make excuses and hide from people. We engage We don't stand in the street and throw fists because the world is coming to an end. We serve our neighbors, and especially we serve our enemies. So this is how we should respond, right? This is how we should respond to this dual story of mass destruction and the hope that we find in Christ's return. We live and love like Christ lived and loved. Can you imagine if Jesus was like, nah, dude, I'm going to go hide in my basement. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to hang out with anybody. I don't want to do anything except for who I choose gets to come and visit me. Can you imagine if Jesus had been selfish? But he wasn't. Jesus engaged in the craziest, most sacrificial ways you and I could ever see. He lived and loved It's the picture of our redemption. It draws near. Why? Right? I've already answered the question why. I won't preach it again anyways. I get way ahead of myself. I know. In case you missed it, Jesus says that we should straighten up and lift our heads because our redemption is near. Man, you stick your head in the sand and guess what you're going to miss? Your redemption, which has come near the meaning of the word redemption is simply this. The meaning of the word redemption is to be purchased at a price. Purchased at a price. Jesus headed to the cross. And He was headed to the cross in just a few short days. And He headed there to simply purchase all of us back from the bondage of Satan's sin in the grave. The scriptures tell us that the payment Or the price of our sin is death. There's two deaths that you and I face. A physical death here on earth, and then a spiritual death. physical death is coming for everybody. There's not a single person who has not died. There's not a single person who has not died. You could argue there was one dude in the Old Testament that was translated from earth to heaven. Just set that aside for a minute. All of us will taste death. And the life that you lived here, either receiving or rejecting Christ, will mirror the life that you live in eternity spiritually. The payment for that death, both physical and spiritual, was paid by Christ. He paid that price for you and I so that we could be redeemed. Why should we respond to this passage by straightening up and lifting our heads? Why? We should respond this way simply because our redemption is near. Our redemption is at hand. The price has been paid. The payment to purchase you and me back from the realm of Satan, sin and the grave. Back from death. Back from rebellion. Back from living as an enemy of God. That payment has been paid. The redemption was paid in full upon the cross of Christ as your and mine's perfect Savior was nailed to the cross we should straighten up with our heads up because our redemption is near that's the whole message of this passage the whole reason that Jesus paints these two pictures is to remind you the payment's been paid the purchase price has been paid redemption has been paid Redemption is near. So as I wrap this up, I, I want to wrap it up with a couple of closing reflections that I hope would be helpful. No, I've answered this question a lot, but it's worth continuing to ask. Talking to the people in Porterbrook yesterday, we were talking about drilling the depths of the gospel on one side, as well as drilling the depths of the sin in our hearts. Um, it's, it, it, it's, it's, an old, um, it's an old connection to a, a Puritan writer named John Owen, who talked about um, the mortification of sin, which is to, is to chase your sin down and kill it. Paul says in Romans, you better be killing sin before it kills you. Okay? And so I'm, I'm taking some bunny trails here to just simply say that it's, it's good for us to drill down into the depths of the gospel. If you just drill the depths of your sin without drilling the depths of the good news of the gospel and the picture of the cross of Christ, you'll be left in despair. That's where you'll be left. You will only have the one picture of this mass destruction that is, that is more horrible than, than words could even describe, right? That's the only picture you'll be carrying around with you. And if you truly mind the depths of the gospel with the picture of the cross of Christ and the empty tomb in view, then you'll be carrying around a selfie of Jesus, trusting in Him in the face of all of that horrifying stuff, Right? So to continue drilling down, how does this passage apply to our daily lives? I know I've spoken in terms that are probably way up here for all of us. I do that oftentimes. And I want to try to get us down to grassroots level for a minute. How do you connect this passage to your heart, to your mind right now? What does it mean for us in 2016 to think about these two pictures and the fact that redemption is drawing near? I want you to think about this. As you think about racial issues and poverty in our community, how do you feel? And, and what do you long for as you think about those issues? As you think about broken marriages and the pain of hurting relationships. What do you feel and what do you dream about? And what what makes you angry? Well, what causes you to feel depressed? What do you long for? What do you want? What do you think you need? Right? When you realize that there is no safety or refuge in this world apart from Christ, what are you motivated to do? As you think about the people that you love who are openly rejecting Christ and and, and embracing a destructive worldview, what emotions are you aware of deep within your soul? Each of these questions would be good for all of us who are hearing this to spend some time with. It's easy to hear all of these questions in one great big swarm and feel a bit overburdened, right? It would be good for every one of us to take these questions, list them out in light of these two pictures and the fact that redemption is near and do some good gospel homework in your heart if you're listening to this and you haven't received Christ, then then what fears or objections even are are, are you aware of deep within you? When you're faced with the fact that you have no control over the direction of the world that we live in, how are you challenged in these moments? When you think about Christ's return to bring completion to His work of redemption in the world, how, how, how maybe are you encouraged? when you think about the horrors of this life and the hope that we have in Christ, how are you moved? Jesus has painted for us a dual picture with a practical response. He's painted this dual picture of the destruction of Jerusalem. And his second coming to encourage us to straighten up and get our heads up. Because the immediate presence of evil and the return of Christ, both together, are meant and intended to remind us that our redemption is near. Redemption is within our grasp, redemption is more than a possibility, it's more than an opinion. It's the truth that you and I need Jesus. Redemption isn't some faraway thing to be grasped. Redemption does have a name and a face. And that person is Christ. Your redemption is near. How do you respond moving forward? Let's pray. Father, as our uh, our music team comes to lead us in closing uh, a song of worship. Lord, I pray that you would uh, take this message. Uh, God, I pray that you would challenge us with it. I pray that you would um, turn our hearts to, um, to worship you in these moments. Lord, I pray for anybody who is here that walked in feeling um, depressed, down, discouraged, um, fearful even. And, and God, I pray that you would use this message and this, 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 kind, of tr- this kind of tri-picture. Um, uh, first, of the destruction of, of, of things that we hold dear, um, as well as the hope that we have in you. And then that third piece of how we can respond, God, I just pray that you would use that to uh, encourage us. If there's anybody here who has not surrendered to you, God, I pray that you would use it to draw them to you. Um, so thank you for our time together pray, God, that your spirit be released to move in our midst. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. And we're going to engage in communion together as we close. And as our music team leads us, there will be two of us near the front to serve you. Uh, You can use kind of these center aisles to come down, receive communion, go back out around the edges. Um, Some of you might be wondering um, who can take communion. And uh, we just simply say this, you do not have to be a member of our church to receive communion. Um, but you do have to be a Christian. You have to be somebody who is trusted in Christ. And that doesn't, here's what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that you prayed some seance prayer. You know, it doesn't mean that you prayed through a list of bulletins. It doesn't mean that you have all your questions answered. It does not mean that you know systematic theology by heart or that you've even read that book. It simply means that you've caught a picture of Christ and you've caught a picture of the depth of the depravity of your sin and you're understanding your need for Christ and though you don't have all your, your questions answered you're trusting that when his body was broken and when his blood was poured out that that was done on your part he did that for you so that you could trust in him he paid the price that you and I should have paid that we could never pay We we could never pay it because the only person that could pay that price would be somebody who was perfect. Broken people can't fix broken people. That's why this message is so important. And so when we take communion, we take it remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. And so you may have, you may have come to that realization right here, right now deep inside of you may have said, yeah, I get it. That's where I'm at. I'm trusting Christ in Christ from this point forward. Come hell or high water. All right? Trust in Him. Now, you can just come and you can celebrate with us. Um, but if you're here, you're not a believer, um, we would ask that you refrain from that because it, it really holds no meaning for you. Glad you're here. Thankful you're here. Love to pray with you if that would be helpful. Um, we just don't want to lead people to be engaged in Religious activity for the purpose of being engaged in religious activity. We want you to engage in this because it has meaning for you. And so there will be two of us here to serve communion. And then we'll, we'll stay near the front to pray with any of you. If you have needs, you have things that we can pray with you about. Questions you have that were provoked because of the sermon. Questions you have about kind of who we are as a church family. Those kinds of things. We would love to talk to you. To pray with you. Um, And so I just invite you to come now. Everybody, please stand with me as we prepare to worship and engage in communion. Thanks for letting me preach. Love you guys. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska, that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.